What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> Talk for me. Hello. I'm David L. Hayes. I caught the world record. <laughs> don't don't you wish? Don't you wish? <laughs> I feel like if I was uh, David Hayes, I'd probably be like... Yeah, uh, this was this was a fun piece to do. You know, I honestly think, you know what, let's just go ahead and jump into it right now. Mm -hmm. And then, because i got things I want to say that I think need to be on the podcast. So, mm -hmm. I'm Chase Winnegar, host of the podcast, and now with Lee McClellan. How's everybody doing? Yep, Lee is co-host of the podcast. And uh, like I was saying a second ago, I honestly think that this story of David Hayes and the world record smallmouth is probably the best story in Kentucky outdoor history. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's probably the most impressive record in the state of Kentucky as yes. far as outdoor stuff goes. And not just that, I mean, it's a story that has controversy it has the drama it has a uh, mm -hmm. you know a lot of lessons you can take from it from david himself because mm -hmm. of how hard he had to work to catch that fish and the things that had to be done i mean it's pretty much just a great story all around so mm -hmm. so uh i know you've sat down and you've talked to david in person before uh several times yeah but but one big time and another smaller time and then I was there at the dedication of the David L. Hayes boat ramp. Yeah. So the main reason this comes up and the reason it's on my mind is because we went on a rabbit hunt down in western Kentucky last week, right? Or two mm -hmm. weeks ago, maybe mm -hmm. something like that. Turned out to be a pretty bad rabbit hunt. The dogs got on a uh, run. They ended up running across the highway into Mammoth Cave National Park and they disappeared. And they were gone. They came back three days later. So, so literally the rabbit hunt was over because, I mean, these dogs just, and, and these guys who we were hunting with had lost their dogs. You I know, bet they were distraught. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've lost my dog before and I've been kind of worried sick when it's happened. So oh, yeah, things went uh, from bad to on the rabbit hunt um, to pretty good driving back home, stopped in and talked to David Hayes in Litchfield there, mm -hmm. who is the man who caught the world record smallmouth bass back in 1955. Yes. And so, of course, Chad knows him on a fairly personal level also. I mean, Chad sat down and talked to him several times before. And while we were there visiting, we didn't record anything or we didn't do anything with him. But we did take a few photos, right? And so when we got back to the office the next day, I put those photos on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And it just blew up. Yes. You know what I mean? I mean, I think we don't pay for any advertising here at Kentucky Field. Everything we do is organic. Mm -hmm. If people want to see it, they'll share it. Things like that, we don't we don't pay to push anything. Yes, and it reached uh, over a hundred thousand people. You know, hundreds and hundreds of shares and comments, and I mean the uh, the amount of attention that post got because it was such an interesting story. Mm -hmm. You know, it just kind of stuck with me. And then I did a little bit more I mean, research. There's, there's greatness, then there's yeah loss, and yeah. then there's redemption. Oh, you it, know? it's a, there should be a, a movie or a book written about it. it. Well, you there actually. I mean, there's several stories written about it. And I've written stories. Of course, that, the best is the one I wrote. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, part of it is uh, after we posted that, a lot of the comments were people saying, why does Tennessee claim it is their state record? Why does it, you know, why is it two state? why do two states claim it? Uh, and things like that. And so I tried to answer those people's questions. And so that made me do some research online. And I pulled up articles from Bassmaster from ESPN, from mm -hmm. Kentucky Fish and Wildlife, from Tennessee Natural Resources, and, and all those different sources. And I put together this thing in my mind, like this this image I have of how things actually went. And it's a really interesting story. Mm -hmm. So I was I was kind of hoping we could just talk about that a little bit, maybe try to tell that story. Yeah, I, th I, I think I, I think it's a, a story that needs to be told. I mean, I think a lot of people would find it pretty interesting. And, and it was caught in the reciprocal water. Yeah. Um, so 
about no. about eighty percent of Dale Hollow Lake is in Tennessee. In Tennessee, yes. and and about twenty percent is in Kentucky. Hmm. And I truly believe it to be one hundred percent true that that fish was caught in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. But because of how things unfolded, I mean, it's like David himself is is kind of bent on saying where it was caught. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of interesting to me because, I mean, obviously he's pointed it out on a map. Mm-hmm. And, and certain, in my presence. Yeah, and yeah. certain people know exactly where it was caught. But on the record, officially to the IGFA, International Game Fish Association, record holders, he, mm-hmm. he it sounds to me like he just won't say where it was because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to. Well, Tennessee went to bat for him to get it reinstated. Exactly. He doesn't want to, you know. Um, one thing that about Mr. Hayes, and I think plays into this, is that he is a very uh, – uh, very much a, a southern gentleman. He's a reserved man. He's a humble man. Well, he's ninety three years old right now, yeah. so he's he's not. If you think about, you know, that grandparent or great grandparent you have that was just raised kind of old school. Mm-hmm. You know, they have their morals and they have their standards mm-hmm. about them, and that's what's really important he, to him. He doesn't want to cast aspersions toward anyone, especially those exactly. who helped him. Especially the people who helped him and did right by him. He's going to do right by them. Exactly. That's kind of how it seems to me. But I, I wanted and, to, and just real quick. Okay. One of the things I think that's played into why people were predisposed to not believe him is because he never tried to profit off of it. He never pounded his own drum. He never tooted his own horn. Mm-hmm. To him, as you know, he caught a big fish. Right. He was very successful in the wholesale grocery business. So yeah. he didn't, you know, th- th- this didn't make his life. It was just something that happened. That's a goal of his, I'm sure, because, yeah. I mean, he, he'd been trying to catch that fish. Mm-hmm. And uh, in an article of yours I just read, uh, uh, his eight-year-old son, who's now 68 or mm-hmm. 70 or mm-hmm. something like that, was there, 53, eight years old. And his old. wife, they were both asleep. Yeah, and his and apparently his son didn't even realize, you know, what the big deal was when he caught that fish. But I kind of wanted to start at the very beginning yeah. with the impoundment and the reason that that record will never be broken. Because yeah. it's it's pretty interesting, mm-hmm. you know. Well, one of the, and I've talked a lot to Benji Kidman, who mm-hmm. was our former fisheries director. Who was very interested in this fish, as we all are. He's a he's a big smallmouth guy too. He's caught some really big ones. I've seen Benji's mm-hmm. caught some over six pounds out of yeah, laurel. So, I've, seen, I've seen pictures of this. I mean, some hogs. So he's he's very much uh, loves to catch smallmouths. And one of the reasons, what happened is that this fish was likely swimming in the Wolf River, um, the foreign impoundment of the lake. Said it was probably born in the Wolf River. In the Wolf River arm of the lake, and you know those those uh, stream fish. You and I love to float creeks for smallmouth. For sure, for and sure. <clears throat> when you're in a stream environment, you have to take advantage of anything that comes along. Yeah. So you're predisposed to <clears throat> eat any food source as much as you possibly can. Yeah, if you got food in front of your face, you eat you're it. You're going to eat it. Yeah. So when, when the, the lake filled and there was just this buffet of shad and little bluegill and all, he just, that, what, what Mr. Hayes called Old Joe. That's what yeah. he called the, the world yeah. record. Basically what happened, and the way I understand it. just grew to enormous size. I'm just going to um, go into what you said a little bit more. Apparently, not only was it a river fish who all of a sudden had this buffet in front of its face, you know, it was predisposed to eat everything it possibly could because of its conditions when it was smaller, mm-hmm. but it was in a branch of the river. I mean, that, basically, there's just superior genetics mm-hmm. in that in yes. that area of the Cumberland River. Mm-hmm. The Upper Cumberland has superior genetics, just like if you were to look at, you know, anything else. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really know how to relate it, but, I mean, it's just superior genetic strain in that area. So you had a genetically superior fish mm-hmm. who was born in a river and who was predisposed to eat everything it could, who all of a sudden this lake was impounded and the lake when it was impounded it flooded farmland 
and basically there were feedlots and, and pastures and yes. all this super fertile ground that was now underwater. And if, and I wrote an article in the magazine, but if you look, one of the things that Adrian did, this is, she colorized the pre-impoundment map. Ted Crowell, mm -hmm. who was our former assistant director of fisheries, gave me the pre-impoundment maps for Cumberland and for Del Hall. Yeah. So, and if you look in the area where Old Drove struck, you can see that there's some foundations, there's some fencing, there was a farmstead and a feedlot yeah. there. And he believed, he told me, he thinks that, that old Joe may have been on some of the foundation yeah. areas. Well, he said that while he was trying to catch that fish in the past, he'd caught buckets, he'd mm -hmm. caught shoes, and he knew that there was something down there. He but, caught clothing. But, he thought the bucket was a big smallmouth. He was yeah. reeling and gets it in. It's a bucket. Yeah. He hooked the handle of the bucket with his bomber. That'd be tough. And he thought it was a gigantic smallmouth. I just think that <laughs> I, I, I just think that it's kind of amazing in itself the conditions it took to grow this fish, mm -hmm. and it's and that's why everybody who knows anything is pretty certain this record will never be broken, because you're probably never going to see another smallmouth stream like that with the quality of smallmouth. Smallmouth, yeah. yeah. And that's one of the few lakes that's still predominantly smallmouth and black bass. Almost all other lakes, smallmouth are, are not the predominant black bass. Yeah, well, that has a lot to do with the, the genetic, or the makeup of the lake, not the, the genetic, lake. but that's why Laurel, Dale, and Cumberland are, are so good. pretty good for smallies is because of you know the, the area that they impound. And you can look at a pre-impoundment map and kind of get an idea for what the lake is, is like now mm -hmm. based on you know the contour of the land back then but so so just to set the story up we have the perfect conditions to for, grow a giant small to grow a smallmouth that could be you know the most perfect condition so it could grow the largest smallmouth ever you know hypothetically and that's exactly what it did so then after the lake was impounded and you had the conditions set up for that smallmouth to be there mm -hmm. it had to be caught somehow Yes. And that's where the the work put in by David to catch this fish mm -hmm. really really comes into play. And he had to do, he had to do a lot to catch it. Yes, he did. And he he fished that point um, three weeks in a row, three weekends in a row, well, not, leading up to that. Not just that, but he didn't have maps or sonar, or no. GPS. And I think that's one of the more impressive things most people found out there about you know the story David David told us when we went to visit him was that. He mapped that lake himself. Mm -hmm. He would bounce lead weights off the bottom and map the contour of the lake and find the river channel. He had to do all that by hand. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? He would float balloons um, off the bottom to mark the channel marker so he knew exactly where to, to run his boat when he was trolling. Mm -hmm. And apparently, according to Chad, he would, if people, because there were guides on the lake at that point, right? Mm -hmm. And they would, uh, excuse me. They would see him out there fishing and they would try to emulate what he what was he doing. Because they knew that David knew what he was doing. Yes. And he said sometimes when people were out there trying to copy him, he would just go back and he'd pop his balloons. He'd just mm -hmm. pop his markers and, and he would just try to keep the and secret. And he would mark the channel with those balloons. Yeah. And, right? and that morning he told me that, that that morning he was aiming for a mud bank in a tree and he kind of triangulated. And he would also use part of Trooper Island and stuff to, to you know, in the day before sonar, if you wanted to find something underneath, you could triangulate by your boat. And look at a tree on one bank and then a tree on the other and try to position your boat in that proper position. That's one yeah. of the ways you try to find stuff. Oh, yeah. Makes sense. And he was triangulating, aiming for a 10-foot wide hole in a weed bed there on that. Which was probably a foundation. Yeah. And underneath of that was all that farmstead and foundation stuff. Yeah. And it was the perfect storm. And, of course, you know, as, as anything hunting and fishing goes, a little bit of luck comes into play. Oh, yeah. Because he was... He wanted to make this certain line, this certain mm -hmm. run. He, he was out there trolling. 
Um, he had a 40 horsepower motor on an aluminum boat, if I remember. He said right. it was underpowered and found, found his plugs all the time. Yeah, he had to carry extra plugs. <laughs> but so, so he had this route he wanted to run, which was just north of Trooper Island. If mm-hmm. you're familiar with Dale Hollow, if you're if you're standing on the boat ramp that's named after David Hayes, D- Trooper Island is directly across from you. Yes. So he was trolling the area between that boat ramp and Trooper Island. Yes. As you look at it, more toward and he would he started in Phillips Bottom on that channel. Yeah. And. One of the things that normally he would go up into the cove mm-hmm. near where the new ramp is. Yeah. But that particular day, there was an older couple that in order to get their bobbers out farther they could cast, they rode their bobbers out, dropped them, would row the boat back in, and then sit in lawn chairs and wait for the bobbers to go down. And that's exactly why I said some luck came into it. Yeah. So because he wanted to make this certain line, mm-hmm. but he was un- unable to that day. Because of that couple. Because that couple was there. So he veered just slightly off course. And pow. Yep, exactly. That's when I'll go. <laughs> yeah, he said uh, he said he was trolling 300 feet back when it hit. Yeah. So if you're thinking, I mean, 300 feet back, that's further than any of us. I mean, that would, mm-hmm. that'd be all the line off my reel and, and half of the Well, he school. was using back in, my granddad had one, an old pen. Yeah. That, and it had black Dacron line. That's how I learned to cast. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, was, it was a metal rod. And that old pen reel was as big as a softball. And you flipped a lever to release the spool. There yeah. was no... Line guide, you had to do it with your thumb and finger. Yeah. And, and that thing would hold a big, big spool of yeah. black deck. Oh, I've seen it before. I mean, ton of line, but I can only imagine. Because I've, mm-hmm. I've fought four and five pound smallies in from 60 feet out before. Mm-hmm. And that's a test. But I'm yeah, also fishing be- eight, 10 pound tests. Mm-hmm. So that black dacron he had was quite a bit stronger. Yes. But uh, still, I mean, that fish could jump. And I think it did tear a lure off his. It, it, tear, it, t- tear it, it tore one of the hooks off. Yeah, I've seen that picture before. And, and it bar- he barely had it hooked. So, get you some water yeah, there. Yeah, get some water. Makes a nice little uh, <laughs> sound. <laughs> so, to set it up so far, I mean, we have a once a, a, a fish that could only exist in these conditions. Mm-hmm. Something that will never exist again. Something that didn't exist before. A one-of-a-kind one fish, right? And you had him going out there and literally filling out the bottom to make his own maps Marking the channels out there week after week after week. He would fly in, too. He was a pilot. He flies on plane in. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. And fish. He must have been well off then. Yeah. Well, he he was he, he did well in the wholesale grocery business. So. so so all that work went into it, and he finally hooked up with this fish, and he landed it, right? Mm-hmm. And then that's where the controversy starts, right? <laughs> but the, the thing that he was surprised, it didn't really fight that hard at the beginning. But then when he got it close to the boat, it started really fighting him. And then when he got it in the boat, he said it just exploded. And he told me, he said, if I'd have had an old rotted net, it would have torn it, torn it to shreds. Yeah, that's a strong fish. And then it, it really went crazy when it got land, when it got in the boat, when it really went nuts. So they took it to Wisdom Dock, which is nearby. If you all know Del Hall, it's up in the Wolf River Arm a little way. Is Wisdom in Tennessee? No, Wisdom is in Kentucky. Okay, okay. And um, there is a picture in the Bassmaster article um, and also was witnessed by one of our law enforcement uh, officers. Um, that, the, that you see a picture of the fish and it's just under 12 pounds on those scales. But those scales were not certified, so they took it down to Cedar Dock and weighed it. And everything was, was fine for, for a long time. It weighed 11 pounds, 15 ounces yep. at Cedar Dock on certified scales. Yes, on certified scales. Just and on- it looked just like the picture that was in Bassmaster where it's almost 12 pounds. And... From the uh, statements of our fish and wildlife officer who was there at Wisdom Dock, corroborated the story. Yeah. So, 
There so was no, on, there was no issue on two scales, one in Kentucky, one in Tennessee, and it was on just under twelve pounds on both, eleven fifteen on the certified scale, and we had a fish and wildlife officer there who saw it weighed unofficially in Kentucky. Yes, and so then it became the IGFA world record for, for a long time, for a long time until it was nineteen ninety. Yeah, it was in the late nineties if memory serves. So over right. over forty years, it was the world record. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Because I don't I don't know the story as well as you guys. now. What happened was there was an outdoor writer researching the catch, and he came across um, uh, an unsigned affidavit in the Corps of Engineers office at Dale Hollow. And an uncle and a nephew swore they doctored the fish with lead weights and metal engine parts. Um, and, um, and a photo surfaced that, that displayed this, but that caused um, the IGFA and eventually the Kentucky Fish and Wildlife um, to drop the fish as the world record because they felt it was tainted. But Tennessee held it. As but Tennessee the- held it, and uh, Ron Fox from the Tennessee uh, TWRA um, began to investigate and found that the dimensions and everything um, matched what, what would have been the world record. Also, um, there were some other reasons behind, and, and this uncle, I'm not going to mention their names, um, the attorney who prepared the affidavit owned a rival dock and didn't want uh, Cedar Hill to get the credit for the world record. Yeah. Also, Cedar Hill had ris- recently fired the owner of the dock, or the, recently fired by the owner of Cedar Hill Dock. He was working as a guide there, mm-hmm. but uh, he fired him uh, <clears throat> for some some job related issues. I won't go into it, but um, and so he had an axe to grind. Okay. So as they began to investigate, they realized that uh, um, Ron Fox realized after looking at everything that that, that this affidavit held no weight. Mm-hmm. Um, it was specious, and uh, he said, "We're not we're not disallowing the fish." Eventually, he brought his findings to the IGFA, and in two thousand and five, they reinstated Mister Hayes's world record. And the Kentucky Fish and Wildlife uh, followed suit. So long. So just to make sure I got it right, the there was an affidavit found by somebody researching it mm-hmm. that said that some boat parts were stuffed unsigned. unsigned that said some boat parts were stuffed down its throat. Mm-hmm. It was uncertified by the IGFA and Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife. Tennessee um, held on to the record, did some more research, and ultimately debunked. That, yes. that it had been tampered with. Yes. And then Tennessee took that information back to IGFA, and they reinstated the record, and Kentucky did as well. Yes. Okay. And, you know, it would have been pretty obvious. I mean, it's not like this thing was the size of a shark. You know, it was yeah. 27 inches long. The girth was on. It was as girthy as it was long. It's like 23 and a half inch girth and 27 Seven and inches a, long, yeah. yeah. And Rick Hill is painted... And if anybody ever comes to the Department of Fish and Wildlife, look at Rick Hill's painting based on the exact dimensions of the fish. Or it's also at the boat ramp. Yeah, and it's also on the boat ramp. It'll blow your mind how big that fish was. Every single time I walk past that that sign at the boat ramp or I walk through Fish and Wildlife headquarters and I see that, I'm like, wow. Oh, Can I my. catch that on 6 line? I'd have to back like, reel for a week. Like, I, I think some of the smallmouth I've caught are big. No. Yeah, but that one, yeah, that is the Mac Daddy. Yeah. But I think you would have noticed that there were boat parts and stuff stuffed in its belly. I mean, it was kind of... But but there's also, I think, some reasons that people were inclined to believe it. Yeah. And this is just my personal opinion, not the opinion of 
Department of Fish and Wildlife. So now to this day, we, we got that far. Mm-hmm. Now to this day, there's controversy over where it was caught officially. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's why people still ask the question, why does Tennessee claim it? Why does Kentucky claim it? All these things. And as far as I know, what I read, this was actually an ESPN article I read. Um, it says that David Hayes was asked where the fish was caught. And I know he's answered this question for you and Jack before, but this is what he officially said to IGFA. Mm-hmm. He... Uh, he didn't. He wouldn't give either state credit on to IGFA. He said that I'll put it this way, and this isn't a quote. I wish I had it in front of me. He basically said, "I'll put it this way: it was within 500 feet of the state line either way, mm-hmm. and Tennessee, for all the work they did to keep it a record, deserves some credit for the catch." Exactly. So, and it was maybe a little bit further than the 500 feet. Yeah, and so the way I but it was very close to state line. I the, mean, state line islands just south of where he caught. Yeah. It, so I mean, literally, Trooper Island is is split yeah. in half by yeah. the, by the, state, by the line. state line. So so he says he was north of Trooper Island, which means it was in Kentucky. And I know he's pointed to it to you mm-hmm. and Chad unofficially and showing you where it was. And that's why I said I wholeheartedly believe that it's a Kentucky fish. Yes, I do. But uh, I mean, you kind of got to respect the guy for not wanting to take credit away from Tennessee. Also, Tennessee went to bat for him. And there, and, you know, there is no doubt in my mind that if he caught that fish where he caught it, that that fish was also in Tennessee at some point. Oh, I'm sure because it's so close. It yeah. might have been caught in Kentucky, but that fish might have been in Tennessee. I have fished that area extensively yeah. often. Yeah, that that fish was swimming in Tennessee waters at some point too. So I personally, no I personally, even as a an employee here and somebody from Kentucky, I've no, I have no problem with both states yeah, claiming. I mean, it's a it's a lake that splits the state line, so I don't either. And. Uh, I don't know. I just think it's it's kind of a cool story how it all came to be, and I like the fact that David. I'm looking at that picture of him you got right there, sticking to his guns. I kind of respect the guy for that. Oh, he's he's a he's a fantastic individual. Yeah. Um, but but to go back on one one thing, I think yeah. there was there was a few circumstances that made people predisposed to think that this fish was not legitimate. One at that time, hardly anybody in Kentucky knew how to mount a smallmouth. This was 1955, so he sent it away. And during that whole time back then, you know, we know to do things, the fish dried out, it stiffened, um, and, and you know, I don't, don't want to be negative to ever, but these people are probably long since passed, but the mouth is actually terrible. I mean, <laughs> you've seen it. It's, it's been recreated, it's real good. Yeah, it's been recreated, but the mouth itself, when it doesn't look that impressive. So yeah. when people see that, they may be inclined to think, well, that's not a 12-pound small mouth. But also, too... The, Mr. Hayes was successful. Um, the, it was a fish for him. And then he's told Chad, he told you, and he's told me, he got a cooler, a box of Bomber 600 <laughs> Diamond Lures, and a lifetime membership membership to the IGFA. That's all he got. Yeah. He did, didn't get any any monetary. He didn't make any money. On n- no real incentive there. And he didn't. A lot of people would have self-promoted, hey, I caught the world record smallmouth and try to cash in on it. He was just like, it was a nice fish, but I've got a business to run. Yeah, he never tooted his own horn, and I think some people thought that was suspicious that he didn't want to draw attention to it. He it was just a fish. He said most of the smallmouths he caught back then they ate. Yeah, well these days, <laughs> and he caught a lot of walleye back then too that they ate. These days, uh, catching that fish would be a completely different story than yes. it was back then. Exactly. Because if somebody caught that fish these days, it's like I put in my two weeks at work the next day. I know, I'm, I'm going to be rich as Roosevelt. No yeah, doubt. I'm retiring. And so that probably skews some people's opinions too, because yeah. they're like, well, why not self-promote it? Why not cash in on it? Well, back then it was probably a little bit different than it would I be. I mean, he was days. thankful to get his, the stuff he got. He got mentioned yeah. in the field and stream as the world record smallmouth. He got a lot of nice publicity, but he told me 
it's also, considering all this happens, been kind of a headache. Yeah, that's still an awesome story, though. Mm-hmm. I, uh, but I'm glad to see that, that he, uh, um, I'm just glad to see that the truth came out. But yeah. also, too, Ted Crowell always said, the genetics, and we've talked Ted on this a minute ago, the genetics in the Upper Cumberland were the best in the world for big smallmouths. And um, <clears throat> I believe that three of the five biggest ever have come from Dell Hall. Well, the three biggest ever. Ever come from, yeah. Yeah, the top three biggest smallmouth ever. And, and I think six of the top ten, Dell Hall. That's exactly what I've heard before. I think that the largest ever at, at this one, 1115, mm-hmm. the world records from Dell Hollow. Number two is like 10 pounds, eight ounces. Mm-hmm. And number three is 10 pounds, four ounces. And I think those might be like the only three smallmouth over 10 pounds ever documented. Ever documented. Yeah. All came from Del, Del Hollow. Hall. And then there's a couple over eight that also came from there. And and one other thing that I, I meant to say a minute ago. When you look at world record, I'm state fish, state record fish program coordinator. When you look at records, they usually tend to like say, you know, the large mouth world record, like the second biggest is just a few ounces shy of that. Then there's a few ounces and a few ounces and a few ounces that separate the top. Yeah. This one was over a pound bigger than any other that had been documented. Yeah, and we're not talking about a 100-pound fish. Yeah. We're, ta- we're talking about a fish that was 15% bigger than yeah. – 20% bigger than any other any fish. Any other. So people thought, ooh, you know, that, that was a red flag for a lot of people, but that's what happened. Yeah. That it's... fish just got gigantic. And those conditions likely would never happen again. I'd say – uh, Benji and I have talked about this before, but I believe that uh, this this record will be one that, that won't be broken. I wish there was Vegas odds on that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see what they would be. <laughs> you know, what's a, what's the chance that the uh, world record smallmouth bass is broken in the next 50 years? I'd, one in a million? Yeah, I'd say that they're, the Vegas wouldn't make odds on something no. that, that, that far shot because it's probably just not going to happen. It's not, it's not possible to see it happening unless they created a new lake, which mm-hmm. they just aren't going to do. Yeah. And Mr. Hayes called that fish old Joe, and he swore he had caught it earlier. And so, like another friend of his said, he thought he had hooked it, and yeah. it came off both times. A couple of a couple of people had apparently hooked that fish and never could land it. And uh, he, that's what he said. He thought he had old Joe when he hooked that bucket. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. well, that's a, that's just a good story. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. But also, too, one last thing is that area now because of wave action and the aging of the lakes, all those structures and yeah. they they they're long gone. Oh yeah, I mean, that area now is flat. It's completely different because this was the lake was impounded in the forties, right? Yes. Forty eight or something like well, that. I want to say it and Kentucky Lake were really similar, like forty four ish, okay. two era. So let's just say the lake had been around for ten, Long time. ten yeah, years, ten years, and now it's been around for seventy mm-hmm. years. So I mean, yeah, big difference. So there was tons of stuff in the lake, tons more nutrients, tons more structures. That's just a, that's just a good story. I kind of wanted to get to because I mean I've always been fascinated by, it. and like I said, we we made that post last week and it blew up and it made me think you know there's a lot of people out there that are interested in that Mm -hmm. if you're from kentucky you probably need to know that story because i mean it's the story of i mean it's the best story as far as kentucky outdoors goes Mm -hmm. um and and everything there's a few other things i wanted to get to here um we got a new commissioner Mm -hmm. which is kind of big news you know it's Mm -hmm. a it's a little bit more recent news but uh New commissioner for the Department of Fish and Wildlife that just uh, became finalized on what Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday or something mm-hmm. like that. Yes, his, his first day at the department is Monday. This Monday coming up. Yes. Yeah. So that's what I heard. I heard he's going to be in the office for the first time. I'm hoping to meet him. I'm mm-hmm. hoping that we can get him on the podcast. I'd like. Yes. To, I'd like to sit down and talk to him. He's an outdoorsman, which mm-hmm. is something I'm very happy about. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to, you know, just maybe sit down and talk to him a little bit and see, you know, what kind of hunting and fishing he, he, he does. He some and, farms. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he does management for 
Abaddon? His name is a R- Rich Storm. Yes. We probably should have mentioned that. Rich Storm, he was our 8th District Commission member. Yes. But he has now been uh, uh, officially made the Commissioner of the, the Department of Fish and Wildlife. and uh, He's I, from Carlisle. Carlisle, Kentucky, which is up near... Nicholas County. Yes. Near Clay W. May. Yeah, he's very close to Clay my, W. May. Clay is probably my favorite W. May. It's incredible. I That's have, the most beautiful place. I've never hunted or fished it, but I kind of wanted to make sure, because this is something that I think is interesting as well, the process for voting on a commission member and then the process to become a commissioner and because i mean there's a there's a lot of uh input from the sportsmen and women as long as you hold a hunting and fishing license you have say in that right a lot of people don't realize that because and and they have it they have you know they have meetings where people vote and i think they send them uh, three names isn't it to the governor can you can you elaborate on the process because i might not know all the details so Mainly, on you know, you have a commission selection. So process. he, so first he was a commission member, which is an is an eight person board, nine person, nine, nine people, so there can be no even votes. Yes. So is a he's he was part of a nine person commission board. Now, how did he become a, a member of that? Well, he he was one of the three, and the governor selects from from the the three highest vote getters at the at the meeting. Yeah. So there's a committee. So there's how many districts? Eight or nine? Nine. Right. There's obviously nine. I should have known that. Yeah. That's common sense. Well, I mean, but yeah, you want it. You want it odd because if it's even, you can. Yeah. You know. So he was one of the three highest vote getters mm-hmm. from the eighth district and voted on by the sportsmen, hunting and fishing. His father also holders. served on the commission from that district. Yeah. So he was he was on the commission board, and then the spot came available, and he has been selected as a new commissioner of Fish and Wildlife. And I'll be honest with you, Lee, I haven't met the guy yet. I've seen him. I've heard him talk before. I watched some of the commission meeting videos and things like that. And me personally, I'm just happy that we got, because it could go one of two ways. You know, you could have a political hire or you could have a hire that just makes sense to the sportsman. You know what I mean? And I, I'm just happy it went the way it did because we have a, a person in there who is a sportsman. He is a constituent. He hunts. He fishes. He's done it since he was nine years old. Mm-hmm. He's obviously somebody who's passionate about the outdoors. Mm-hmm. And as an employee of Fish and Wildlife, and I think most employees up here like me, most of us do it because we love it. Mm-hmm. There's more money out there in the private sector mm-hmm. for the vast majority of us if we wanted to go that route. But I think the reason a lot of us... I look forward to work every day. Yeah. Very few people do. A lot of the reasons that people like me and you, and I can name a hundred others up here. Yeah, Chad. The the reason that we're drawn to these jobs is because we enjoy working for Fish and Wildlife, and we feel like what we're doing is actually worthwhile. And it improves people's lives, even people who don't hunt and fish. You know, we do habitat work. We do things that, that promote, that help songbirds, that help endangered species, that help, you know, all kinds of, of... Benefit, collateral benefits yeah. from from what we do that, yeah. that benefit and improve the quality of life for everybody. Yeah. Everybody wants to see more animals, more diverse, more diversity of animals. Better I mean, habitat. Who doesn't want to see that? Better habitat. More, you don't want it to go the other way. Yeah, more opportunity. Yeah, I, that's what I'm saying. I'm basically I'm I'm glad it went the way. I'm glad that Rich is our new commissioner because he's a sportsman. I feel like he's somebody who probably connects with the the overall mission and goals of the vast majority of us up here. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we're working on the same page yeah. as as the person who's now in charge. Mm-hmm. So that's all I want to say about that. I hope we can get him on sometime soon. I'd yes. like, like to sit down. To, obviously, he's going to be extremely busy when he gets in office on Monday. But I do plan on. <laughs> Sending him an email or, or stopping in just to stick my head I'd in. I'd love to have him as a guest. Yeah, it'd be great. And I think he'd... And then we can say, hey, can we come and uh, fish on your ponds? No. Does he have good, <laughs> does he have good ponds? I don't know. Yeah, I hope we'll he does. find out. Yeah, I hope he does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, can do a, we can do a field podcast. 
<laughs> I hope he does have a good I'm plans. just kidding. Hey, but right now at this point, it is what, January 9th, 10th, 11th? 11th. It is January 11th. Lake Cumberland is over summer pool. Oh, I know. So was Dale. And I saw a video from uh, uh, Wolf Creek Dam down on Lake Cumberland yesterday. All 10 floodgates open. And all sluice gates are open. They're can, just can you imagine? The I, I went fishing the Friday after Christmas. Yeah. And we, we caught two 123 inch and 116 inch striper uh, in Fall Bush Creek. You got a keeper there, right? Yeah, yeah. We got a <laughs> and we worked our butts off yeah. for those two little bites. However, as the day went, you just saw more and more stain, more and more trees, more and more stuff. You could tell there was a lot of water coming into the lake. Yeah. All and right. um, <clears throat> I think Cumberland's going to be, it's going to be a while before it's like, cool. You know, Chad, Chad brought up a good point to me the other day. And, um, you know, Dale Hollow is also over summer pool, right? Mm-hmm. He says, he says that he kind of is worried that if we get a bunch more rain, and uh, the water stays high, that they'll, you know, they're trying to pull it. They want it to get down to winter pool. And the reason for that is so that when the spring rains come, they have some room to work with. They have excess. Yeah. You don't, capacity. you don't want the lake to be high when spring rains come. So they're going to try to pull it down before then. Right. He's kind of somewhat worried that if we get a ton of rain or a lot of precipitation between now and the next month or two, mm-hmm. that the smallmouth are going to spawn. They're going to lay eggs, and then the water might get pulled down off. Yeah, of them. pulled down off the. Yes, that's a very real possibility. Yeah, what you want right now, if you're a bass angler on any of those stable water. Yeah, you want you want low participation or just normal participation because otherwise there's a there's a small chance that those bass could spawn, and then the water get pulled down off of them, and we could lose a whole year class. Yeah, which would be horrible. Which would be yes. Yeah, so let's just hope for that that doesn't happen. And I think the toughest fishing situation on a reservoir and on a stream is falling water. Yeah, and falling when they're water. pulling the bottom out of it, it just it pulls the fish off the cover. It puts them in a neutral feeding to negative feeding mode, and they just wait it out. You know, yeah. it makes fishing really tough. Well, there's there's a couple of different. I think that when they're pulling it hard, I 100 percent agree. But like say they have uh, they're just pulling it normally or just barely pulling it it can set the bait up on the points yes it can. so so it can help you out to a point but when they're really pulling it hard i mean those fish just go into almost you know, a torpor like, yeah exactly and, and i've noticed too like on kentucky lake when they're pulling it that that's when you that's when you can smack them yeah um because it creates a positive current but man when they're when these highland impoundments like dale and cumberland and laurel when they're really pull, pulling the bottom out of it man it does I mean, a little bit of pulling can pull, turn them on, but usually it just, especially small mouths, it just turns them off. Do you think of, you know more about the uh, dams than I do. Do you think it, because there are different types of dams. There are overhead dams. There are uh, uh, hydroelectric generators, which pull from the bottom. I mean, it probably depends on what kind of a reservoir you're setting up, because you're talking about pulling the bottom out of them. You're pulling a different layer of water out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the oxygen levels aren't the same throughout. So if you're pulling... The bottom versus the top, you're pulling more oxygen, you're pulling cooler water. Mm-hmm. You're mean, pulling the habitat. What happens in winter is, you know, you have your turnover, <clears throat> and then oxygen is um, spread throughout the water column. Well, as things, that we call that the winter stored water. As things heat up, you have a layer cake, and that winter storm water that's that gets deeper as the, the year gets warmer and we get into fall, that's the habitat of the striped bass. That's the habitat of the walleye. So if you have to pull like crazy, 
you're going to pull some of that that potential habitat out of the lake. And we've had fish kills when it happens. Like in September, we get a hurricane through, and the lake jumps up. I remember one year, I think it was Hurricane Ivan, the lake jumped up 13 feet in just a couple of days. Yeah. And they pulled it hard, and then we had some walleye and striper fish kills. Yeah. Because the, the habitat went into the river. Yep. Makes sense. So, you know, I, the hard pulling situation does pull a little bit of the habitat out of the lake. Won't be so much right now because, um, you know, it's winter and there's there's dissolved oxygen up and down. But if this continues on into the spring and into the summer and we have to pull, 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 it could it, it could place, by the August, it could place those fisheries in, in stress. And that's when you don't catch the stripers go negative and they get skinny and all that when we have those really, really wet years and then we get into august and september and there's the, the habitat is it, it'll be down there but it won't be cool enough for them to want it and that, that's when you can get into some trouble i made a bet with a uncle of mine over christmas that stripers didn't naturally reproduce without salt water did i lose that bet because we couldn't figure it well, out <laughs> I, what happened was with santee cooper when they built that that reservoir complex in south carolina the stripers were up in the lake and then they closed they the, they closed the dam and they got landlocked. And they assumed that they would die, but they survived. So they did spawn. The, the, the natural ocean stripers did go up into freshwater rivers to spawn, and then they would go back out in the ocean. So I lost my bet. You may have lost your bet. Well, hopefully he doesn't listen. <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, the, the striper fishery in yeah. Cumberland is 98%. I mean, there may be a little bit of natural reproduction. I don't know. Yeah. But it's, it's stocking. That makes sense. But they survived in freshwater, and a lot of people didn't think they would. So. Yeah. When all of a sudden these stripers were in Santee Cooper uh, complex, like, wow. So they gave some to other states to, to uh, artificially spawn and make, and then that started the inland striper fisheries we know today. Well, i tell you what, Lee, I, we don't have a whole lot more to go over, but there is one thing I wanted to hit on. You know, it's kind of a transition period right now. It's getting mm -hmm. cold outside. It's like 15 degrees right now. I like it. No, I like it, but a lot, need of, a cold winter. A lot of opportunities are, are slowing down. Yes. But a lot of opportunities are going up at the same time. A yes. lot of people don't realize it. This cold spell could be really good for our waterfowl. Yes, because it's been pretty so far. But I don't, I don't have a waterfowl hunted to to date i told you yesterday i had an opportunity i was interested in but if you're a predator hunter this is really the time to get out there uh they're becoming because food i mean you you know as much about this as me I, I didn't plan on talking about this but i will this time of year for the animals out there they need more fat reserves mm -hmm. they need more body mass to survive and if you're a predator you're eating animals you're not eating corn and beans mm -hmm. and you're not foraging. So you have to hunt harder to survive. You need yes. more fat. You need more energy to stay alive. So you're hunting harder. You got to eat more. And this time of year, there's kind of on the moon. Yeah, there's kind of less to eat at the same time. A lot of animal you don't there's probably not as much opportunity to catch a squirrel right now as there is in the spring or the fall when they're on the ground looking for nuts. And mm -hmm. so your coyotes, your bobcats, your foxes, they're all having to work harder to survive. And so that makes them more opportunistic. If they hear that dying rabbit off in the distance, mm -hmm. they're more likely to, to go to it. You know what I mean? Because I mean, that's a meal they might need. So predators are becoming more and more active. It's a, it's becoming a really good time. I'd say over the last two or three weeks, I've seen a big uptick in the amount of coyotes being successfully called in. One of my buddies called one in today. I'm two out of three on my last three sets, which is pretty dang good. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would just encourage people to, if you have a place to do it, go out there and, and give it a try.
-hmm. you kind of need a good amount of land to be able to actually predator hunt because I mean, they're, they're intelligent animals. They've learned, you can't call the same thing every other day. You got to give it a couple of weeks, maybe a month in between. So in order for it to be worth you going out there and spending $200 on a call, mm -hmm. you might need some land to cover. There's always public land. One of my buddies, he has a ton of land to hunt and he's still talking about going to a certain WMA because he feels like there's bobcats there. And we do public land bobcat hunt every year and have mm -hmm. success doing it. So public land shouldn't be overlooked, but I just want to get that out there that things are getting good right now. If you're, if you've never coyote hunted or predator hunted before, just remember they're, they're all nocturnal. Mm -hmm. So your best times to go are going to be early morning. I wouldn't suggest calling as soon as you think you can shoot because they can see better than you can. You mm -hmm. want to, you want to call them in when you can see them as well as they can see you. So wait, probably wait until the sun, you know, is you're within five minutes of sunrise. So what you so say you can actually see early morning or late in the evening. That's your best opportunities to actually get them to, to come into you. Um, most predators, especially coyotes rely heavily on their nose. So always set up for the wind. You know what I mean? They are going to try to wind you 100% of the time. A coyote is 99%. They want to avoid chili too. For, no. Well, yeah. Well, I, you know what? That's the thing. I don't think there's anything you can do to save yourself yeah. from a coyote winding you. You could take a scent free shower. You could chew one of those scent free pieces of gum. You scent free deodorant, wash all your clothes and scent free stuff. And you go out there and you got a bad wind. That coyote is going to smell you 400 yards away. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's just nothing you can do. I honestly, probably three years ago, just quit trying. You know what I mean? Like, I care more when I'm deer hunting about my scent than I do when I'm coyote hunting. When I'm coyote hunting, you could send me out there just smelling horrible. And I would think I'd probably have as good a chance of success as, as anything because they're going to smell you regardless. Yeah. Whether you smell as little as possible or the worst you've ever stunk in your life. I mean, they probably have the same opportunity to smell you because their noses are just that good. Mm-hmm. I've seen them 250 yards away, trotting, hit my scent, and without thinking about it, just instinctually, turning and going. You know what I mean? It's like, they're, they're, they're in, they're out, 250 yards away. You know, it's crazy. But uh, let's see, I had a couple notes here. Also, uh, getting up early in the morning on the winter, getting being outside at, sun, at daybreak in the winter is one of the coolest times. Yeah. It, yes, it's cold, but so what? Life's... Yeah. When you say coolest times, I mean, it's I mean, it really is, but yeah. it's just, there's nothing like being out an hour before daybreak on a frosty, cold winter morning and yeah. watching, watching the, the, the world uh, wake up. It's fantastic. Especially if it's kind of a still day. Mm -hmm. You know, when you got one of those. Like, the sunrise is gorgeous. Uh, yeah, it's definitely different. You can, I love it when there's snow on the ground. Yeah. And I just want to give like a few more tips for predator hunting. If somebody's interested in doing it, maybe give it a try. Like I said, wind matters. You want to set up based on terrain. You need to think about where you think the animals are. And then when you put your call out there and you're calling, just know they're going to try to get downwind. So think about based on where they are and where your call is going to be, where those predators are going to try to go. You need to think about the terrain because if they have the opportunity to get downwind of you without breaking cover, they're going to do it. So really, when I'm thinking about where to set up, it's almost like I envision on my in my head where they are and which way the wind's blowing. And then it's almost like I have this moving target. If I put my call here and then I see the arrow okay, and the, the wind's going this way, this is where they're going to try to get. Mm -hmm. And I kind of envision based on where I think they're at to where I think they're going to try to get where I could possibly cut them off at. You know what I mean? So I do that. And then uh, if you're strictly hunting coyotes, so you don't think you got a good chance for fox or bobcat or you're not interested in fox or bobcat, 
start off with some coyote vocals because they're social animals and then it's a long range call so they can hear that a long ways off so if you do a, a coyote howl or something like that they'll they'll hear that maybe further away than they'll hear your rabbit call and they'll it'll make them more comfortable they'll think oh there's a coyote in that area it's probably safe and they're social animals they might come in just to that and I would do an howl, maybe two howls, and then at five or ten minutes in, break into a prey distress. Try to call them in with that food source. You know what I mean? Run that for 15, 20, 25 minutes, on and off. Coyotes like on and off. Bobcats actually prefer consistent sound, which is kind of different. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to stick to coyotes for now. On and off for 20, 25 minutes. And then if they aren't there within 20, 25 minutes, chances are they aren't coming. So what I'll do then is kind of what I consider my last ditch effort call, and that is pup distress or coyote distress. Because they are social animals, they are pack animals, and when they hear another one in trouble, they'll go to try to check it out. I don't know if they're trying to help out, they're just curious, I don't know what's going on, but a lot of times I can sit on a set and I can run through 25 minutes of rabbit distress and nothing will come in, and as soon as I hit coyote distress, bam, here they come. You know what I mean? Mm. That's actually the last time I called one in. That's exactly what happened. So, and um, so that's for coyote hunting. If I was looking at fox or bobcat, I would just stick to prey to uh, prey calls. So just run your rabbits, your woodpeckers, some type of food source, and I would do it for longer at a time. So maybe five minutes on, one minute off. Five minutes on, and give them a little bit more time. Maybe give them twenty-five or thirty minutes instead of fifteen to twenty. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So. That is, the really the only way to get really good at predator hunting is to go out there and do it. You're yeah. gonna you're gonna have to mess up and you're gonna have to figure out what works and where, where you're hunting. You're gonna have to figure out your farms. But bottom line is this time of year that's something that is really coming into full swing. And if you haven't done it, maybe try to find a place to go. Not my farms though, but try to find somewhere else <laughs> to go. Else, please, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> southeast, southeast Kentucky, Western Kentucky have a lot of bobcats. Uh, everywhere else has a lot of foxes and coyotes. If you're daytime hunting, you're probably gonna call them coyotes yeah foxes are much more strictly nocturnal than coyotes are i've only called in one fox in my life and i've called in 60 70 80 coyotes and there's probably almost equal numbers yeah so anyway that's all i had lee i don't know if you got anything else to add no just um um remember that uh, kentucky and tennessee but kentucky is the home of the world record small land. yep you yep know, and we can, um we can hang our hat on that forever I can't uh, guarantee anything, but I'm hoping to have new commissioner Rich Storm on sometime mm -hmm. soon. Yes, uh, just my gut feeling is pretty confident that at some point he'll be yes. he'll be willing to do that. Yes, um, and uh, looking forward confident. looking forward to hearing what kind of an outdoorsman he is. So mm -hmm. sitting down and talking to him one on one. So anyway, appreciate your time, Lee. Thanks for coming on. Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. I, anytime I talk about this catch, I mean I've studied it for years. It's been a one of the, it was my favorite story I've ever written, and yep. and that day I got the days and times I got to spend with Mister Hayes have been one of the highlights of my career. No, it's no. just fantastic. It's a great story. Got it all. Appreciate your time, Lee. Everybody, no try no problem. Look, try to stay warm out there. Yes, and be careful in the snow, but it'll be fun. I love snow. <laughs> <laughs>